0: Welcome to Mentally Stronger, the show that will help you develop the mental strength you need to reach your greatest potential. Today, I'm sharing a special bonus episode where James Altucher interviews me. We originally recorded this when I was a guest on his podcast, The James Altucher Show, to talk about my book, 13 Things Mentally Strong Couples Don't Do. I've known James for at least 10 years now, and I've been a guest on his show probably 10 times. But every time I talk to him, I learn so many new things, even when I'm a guest on his show. And he's let me be a guest to talk about everything from a jewelry side hustle that I had for a while to how to build mental strength. Forbes magazine once called James the most interesting man in the world. And if you talk to him for a few minutes, you'll probably understand why. I interviewed him on Mentally Stronger to talk about the importance of having a quest in your life. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, check out episode number 74, and you can hear that interview. On today's show, we talk about everything from the business of being an author, to what it's like to be a therapist, to the strategies that I share in my book about how to build a stronger relationship. Now, let's dive straight into the episode, and if you want to hear more from James, make sure to check out his podcast, The James Altucher Show. And I've never hit a bestsellers list the week my book goes on sale anyway. Really?
1: That's interesting. Actually, we'll start with that. You're saying, you know, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, which sold uh, like a million copies or whatever. That didn't hit a bestseller list the first week?
0: It did not. I think it was a solid year and a half later after it came out that it hit the bestseller list.
1: No way. So I really admire that. Like It means that word of – because by then you were done marketing. So it was word of mouth and just – one by one people realizing oh this is a book that's actually useful in my life as opposed to just simply responding to some marketing campaign
0: yeah I got some unexpected press in some unusual places along the way and um like what Rush Limbaugh oh yeah on on the air on like Monday he said oh we're gonna talk about the 13 things mentally strong people don't do he never got to it and then Tuesday he said we're gonna talk about the 13 things mentally strong people don't do never got to it he didn't get to it until Friday by Friday my books had sold out everywhere because it was over a year after the book had gone on sale. So the stores didn't even have that many copies of it. So they sold off the shelves everywhere.
1: Wow. I did not know that. You never told me that. Um, Were You You know, it's a weird thing because, you know, my, I hate to to bring it up because I've brought it up so many times, but my article about New York City, he read that article word for word on the air. I wish it had been a book. It would have sold millions of copies. Instead, millions of people read it. And because it was Rush Limbaugh, Everybody in New York—that was one of the things that contributed to everybody in New York City hating me, but the rest of the country loving me. So I
0: didn't know that either. That, that he read your list. Interesting.
1: Yeah, he he did, and and Glenn Beck did, and Joe Rogan did. Uh, I had Glenn like, Beck as well. Ba- oh yeah. So so you. I wonder. But your book probably sold well in in New York City, like because they probably didn't know that part, because they don't like if you have any guilt by association. But your book is the sort of book that probably appeals in large cities anyway, where there's a lot of people having therapy. No stigma to that, but therapy is probably more common in urban areas than rural areas, is my guess.
0: Yes, you're right. I came from rural Maine, where people, a lot of people were still mortified to be seen at the therapist's office. And I remember that when I first started going to New York, when I wrote my book, and everybody was like, oh, I'm going to see my therapist on Thursday. And I'm like, wait, what? And it wasn't anything I was used to because people in rural Places I had lived before never were that open about going to see a therapist.
1: I don't see a therapist at the moment, but when I was seeing a therapist in New York City, I was embarrassed. Like one time, while I was leaving, someone was coming in who I knew, and I was deeply embarrassed. (laughs) I don't know why. It's because you maybe because there's this myth that we're supposed to be perfect, you know. And the funny thing is, I'm so vulnerable in my writing. Like I tell all my flaws and, and faults in my own writing, but then to actually have someone see me at the therapist, it's felt like very exposing.
0: Right. And so, and where I was a therapist in rural Maine too, I mean, it was like the principal of the school might run into one of their students or something like that in the waiting room because it's a really small community. So I get that. And even I was a therapist and I was seeing a therapist and I still didn't admit it. Like, I think I admitted it publicly, like, probably like you did long before I would have told my friends or family.
1: Well, if you're a therapist, don't you have to see a therapist? Isn't it like part of the license that you have to have therapy to be a therapist? Kind of make sure everyone makes a living?
0: Well, right. So you have to see like a supervisor, but you can use it more like to talk about your cases as opposed to yourself. Like, of course, issues with yourself come up because somebody might remind you of your grandmother or they talk to you in a certain way that makes you, causes you to feel a certain emotion. But you can do it in a very like, um, still like a professional way, like I'm struggling with this client because I have some own, my own personal issues. So how do I work with this client as opposed to actually like diving into your own personal issues?
1: That sometimes in a weird way happens on a podcast, like and maybe you've noticed this doing your own podcast, like sometimes somebody will write a book that will really touch upon issues that I'm having or dealing with. In in a in a bad way. Sometimes in a good way, like, oh, I'm glad I read that. Sometimes it's like, oh, I didn't want to think about that, but now I have to do a whole podcast about that.
0: Yep, exactly, right? Yeah, and it will just touch a nerve that I don't want to talk about or I just don't like it for whatever reason or I, I disagree with it, but not in a way that I want to get into a debate about it. I just don't like something about a certain book.
1: Do you ever have a patient, and I mean, probably, but do you ever have a patient that you just really, really despise?
0: As I'm nodding my head before you even get Mm -hmm. done the question, yes. And so I learned early on that you look at your your list of who's coming into the therapy office that day and think about which patient you hope doesn't show up the most, and that's the person you probably need the most supervision about. And it was absolutely right that if there was somebody, you're like, oh, I hope my one o'clock cancels today. That's probably the person I should be talking to my supervisor about because it's something with me.
1: What do you hate about that person? Um... Why, like, why does it have to be about you? Why can't it just be the person, the despicable person?
0: <laughs> I guess there there is that. But still, even like sitting with somebody who maybe is a despicable person, they haven't done anything despicable to me necessarily. So then I think, well, like, why why am I offended by their behavior? Why is it so hard to sit here? Because I would find even people that did some pretty bad things usually still had something likable about them. Or sometimes people would tell me these stories about things that they did, and I would think, but if I met you on the street or I met you somewhere else and I didn't know this stuff about you, like I would never guess it and I would really like this person. So sometimes it was just more about like, again, they reminded me of somebody or their the issues they were dealing with brought up my own insecurities or my own issues or I didn't know how to help them or I felt like it was my fault that they weren't getting better faster or yeah, I guess there were some people that were just flat out jerks too who said rude things.
1: <laughs> and and. Look, this latest book which I spoke about in the intro already, but 13 things mentally strong couples don't do and I I did first off, I didn't know you did couples therapy. Do people do a lot of therapists who do individual therapy always do couples therapy or are they usually considered I usually thought they were like separate pra- types of practices.
0: So it depends. If you if I were had been a therapist in New York City, I could probably specialize in 14-year-olds with OCD and have
1: which is what my therapist specialized in and then <laughs> and then there was me. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, I was the only one who wasn't like a 14-year-old girl. Really? Yeah. <laughs>
0: How did that come to be that you saw somebody that specialized in something completely different?
1: Because I my the friend who recommended her, her daughter was seeing her, ah. but she was so good for her daughter and I was going through something, it was almost like I needed like emergency therapy surgery. And this was the best therapist she knew. So she recommended to the therapist and to me that we see each other.
0: I see. Yeah, that makes sense then. And so in my experience in rural Maine, we didn't get to like specialize. There was two therapists in a in the whole, I don't know, county that I lived in. It was myself or my sister. So pretty much whether you were a 14-year-old girl or a 75-year-old man you were stuck with one of us unless you wanted to travel a long way. And certainly in pre-COVID days, like, the internet wasn't an option. And still, in many places in rural areas, the internet's not fast enough to have video chats.
1: Yeah. So, uh, I mean, do you do a lot of therapy sessions over Zoom now?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now now it makes it much easier, so I don't have to...
1: That's so um, much better.
0: Right? Definitely. And so back... in Maine where I like, I didn't want to see couples. I actually had no desire to see couples, but it really wasn't a choice. So I learned very quickly how to, uh, get more comfortable with seeing couples.
1: Yeah. uh, So I'm going to dive into what you just said, but you know, it's interesting. This book I feel is the most, so, so you've done 13 things mentally strong people don't do 13 things mentally strong parents don't do, uh, 13 things mentally strong women don't do. you've 13 things mentally strong kids don't do you. you, I really admire how you've built a franchise out of it. And, you know, this one I feel is the most different because in the other ones, I feel the 13 things are somewhat related to the original 13 things mentally strong people don't do. But this one for couples, it's a completely different 13 things mentally strong couples don't do. There's not really a correlation between this and the other 13 things. So I I just wanted to do a, a, And and by the way, I think maybe it's because of that. I felt for me, this was the most personal book you've written since the first one. The first one was very personal and and very moving about your experiences. uh, And some of them overlap with this one. But you have other experience? You you talk more about your husband in this one because it's about couples. And, uh, um, you know, both in the first one and this one, you talk about your, your first husband. And so I just wanted to review real quickly the first book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People don't do like what led to that? I have the original article up in front of me that you wrote that had like millions of views and that led to your book deal and changed your life. Um, But what led to you writing that, that original viral article?
0: So it was really a letter to myself at like the worst time in my life. So my mother died when I was 23 and my husband died when he and I were both 26. It was the three year anniversary of the day that my mom died, that I lost my husband And obviously life was terrible and I'm supposed to be a therapist who helps other people with their problems. And I found myself in just in a really dark place for a long time. And that's not even the right phrase to say a dark place. Like, I don't even know how to describe that period in my life when I thought my 20s were going to be amazing and they certainly weren't. And I mean,
1: what, what, what did you, I mean, try, like what, what did you do during the day when you're in this dark place? Like, what couldn't you do?
0: Yeah. So, well, I had to go to work because I didn't have any money. So I had to figure out how do I go to work and help other people deal with their problems, which was not, I don't know. I didn't know how I was going to do that either. Like, I felt like I could barely drag myself out of bed. And yet I'm like, nobody's going to come talk to me if they know what I'm going through. And because I lived in a small community, some of my clients knew what had just happened to, it was so bizarre. And some of them had no idea. And they would tell me about their problems. And then some of them would learn about it later. Like... I've been coming to talk to you about this issue I have, and now I know that your husband just died, and I'm like, "Oh, it's all good. It's fine. We can still talk about what's going on." With it was the strangest, like most surreal period of my life.
1: I mean, did you have to like compartmentalize very well? Like that must. Did you get into this habit of just like shutting off your personal life when in a, in you know talking about other people's personal lives?
0: I did. So it was kind of like, you know, I'd get used to like stepping into the office in the morning. I worked for an agency at the time. So there was a bunch of other therapists who, thank goodness I worked with other therapists too. Who knew? Like, and so we had a meeting before I came back where like we sat down and they were like, how do we help you? And what would be most helpful to you? And they like made a pact like, we're not going to, just because we cross you in the hallway, we're not going to say, how you doing today? Because we don't want you to burst into tears at 2 p.m. And I was like, that is a great idea. Let's make sure. And they would ask me like, what if we checked in with you, like maybe after work every once in a while, is that okay? And I was like, absolutely.
1: Well, wow, that was great that they were upfront and talked to you about it. Cause that's right? a very awkward situation in the workplace often.
0: It is because I think then people feel like they want to acknowledge it, but I get that. I didn't want people to come up to me during my lunch break and say, gosh, I'm so sorry. How are you? And to have this really deep discussion about my problems while I'm supposed to be paying attention to other people's problems. So that was a huge thing that they did. And in fact, they had contacted me before my husband's funeral and said, honestly, do you want us to come? Like, we would all like to be there for you. But if it's too weird for like your boss to meet your dad, like we don't need to come either. So you tell us what you want. And I was so grateful that they did that. And then I tried to get short term disability and they didn't cover grief. So they said, sorry, you get three days off. And because my sister's a therapist, she marched me into the doctor's office, like literally went with me, and she's like, "Look at her. she can't go to work as a therapist, diagnose her with acute stress disorder, which is like the precursor to PTSD. And the doctor did, and then I was able to get three months off from work um, for short term disability
1: because they'll cover acute stress disorder, but they won't cover grief won't they won't they cover depression?"
0: they would yes but at the time there was like this weird thing about grief and depression pretty much didn't happen simultaneously in terms of how diagnoses worked it ah. was like if you were grieving if you were depressed for the first year it was just considered grief strange but true
1: wow so you can't have depression clinically if someone around you died
0: <laughs> right back in the day that was the deal that i mean this was 2003 so it wasn't or 2006 so it wasn't like it was a million years ago but they've since shifted and figured out yeah Yeah. sometimes grief quickly turns into depression
1: or it could trigger depression right you could have been depressed already and that made it worse exactly so 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 okay you you, you, but then what did you do you wrote this letter to yourself
0: yeah so i write this letter to myself that's basically like okay amy (laughs) if you've learned anything from your losses but also from being a therapist it's like don't do these certain things and you'll probably be okay and i but since i also needed money like i didn't have enough money as a therapist i needed extra money on on the side and one of my ways of earning extra money was to write articles and i wrote articles for $15 so that i could keep my heat on it was like i got $600 a month from writing and that was enough money so i could have heat in maine in the winter
1: wait how many articles did you write a month that's like 40 articles <laughs>
0: Right, so I was churning them out after working on the weekends as quickly as I could. Uh, Some of them I got paid twenty five dollars for, but it was fifteen to twenty five dollars per article. And as long as I made six hundred dollars a month, I could afford my mortgage and continue to live in my house, which was super important to me. I didn't want to move. I had like lost, felt like I'd lost everything else. The last thing I wanted to do was pack up and move. So,
1: so who who did you turn to in like your grief? Like, did you have close friends? Was your was your your mother had passed away, but was your father around or?
0: Yeah, so my dad is around. Um, he was just getting into a relationship with somebody that had younger kids, and um, were, you, were you
1: resenting that he was getting into a relationship within, you know, three years of uh, your mom passing away?
0: I wasn't like overly resent. Like I wanted him to be happy. The last thing I wanted was for him to be alone. He was nineteen when he and my mom got together. He'd never mm. really been alone, so I wanted him to be with somebody. I don't think that he went about it in a way that I would have. I think he immediately thought we were going to all be this one big happy family. I was still grieving the loss of my mom, and then I was grieving the loss of my husband. So then to, like, be part of another family all of a sudden wasn't anything I was particularly interested in that moment. Right, and
1: they're all happy and bonding, and you're still feeling detached from everything.
0: That, that'd be correct. That's a good description. What about your sister? Well, my sister was amazing. So she was pregnant with her first child when my husband passed away, and— um and so her family was growing at the same time, but she she and her husband were amazing and really helpful to me.
1: It's very interesting. You wrote this article in not in this like condescending way, like this is what mentally strong people do or don't do because I'm mentally strong. I don't know. You're, you're sort of like reminding yourself that you need to do these things.
0: Right. And so then I thought, just don't do these things and you'll be okay. No matter what happens today, Amy, just don't feel sorry for yourself. Don't give away your
1: power. It's interesting because, and we'll talk about the specific things in a second, but each one of these items on the, on your initial book slash article, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, they're all about things that basically, if you do these things that you shouldn't do, they're not gonna, none of these things are gonna improve your life. So that's why you really shouldn't do them.
0: Exactly. And you know, we all do them sometimes, but on the other hand, the more you do them, the worse life gets. So I just wanted to be like, just don't do these things. And then- I thought I'm just going to tuck this letter in my pocket and hold on to it. But then it dawned on me, yeah, maybe it'll help somebody else. So I put it on the internet again, just expecting a handful of people to read it. I never imagined it would go viral or that I'd write a book or that I'd be here all these years later still talking about it.
1: But it's an exciting thing when when an item like that changes your life and really, and you really are able to run with it. So I'll, let me just say a few of these things. So, uh, And actually, as a test to listeners, just think about, the last time you did one of these things that mentally strong people don't do. And I will do that as well. So they don't waste time feeling sorry for themselves. I did that today and it's only 1.30 PM in the afternoon. Uh, they don't give away their power. I probably haven't done that today, or, or, but I've certainly done it recently. They don't shy away from change. I'm good at change. I'm, I welcome change. They don't waste energy on things they can't control. I do that all the time. They don't worry about pleasing everyone i probably do that more often than i would like they don't fear taking calculated risks i'm i'm good with that one they don't dwell in the past i'm not good with that one they don't make the same mistakes over and over i do that all the time they don't resent other people's success i'm good at noticing when i do that and then i don't do it but i i it's a social media thing like if you're going on social media And I see something, I'll think it for half a second, then I'll notice I'm I'm resenting something, and then I'll stop. Uh, They don't give up after the first failure. I definitely don't do that. Uh, They don't fear alone time. I don't do that. They don't feel the world owes them anything. I'm okay with that. They don't expect immediate results. I want immediate results all the time. (laughs) So... Like, how many of those things, Amy, do you still do?
0: Yeah, as you were going through the list, I was thinking, again, about some of those things I still did today. Like, if I were honest, like, yeah, I probably gave away my power today. I was dealing with another company, and I'm blaming them for things. And I'm like, eh, you know, perhaps I could have empowered myself more.
1: It's hard when you're publishing a book, by the way, is that you would think, the you know, I'm not putting down your publisher. Your publisher is HarperCollins, Right, right. And I, I love HarperCollins. Collins. I, my last book, Skip the Line, was with Harper Collins. They've always been very good to me. But just the publishing business in general, you think that this big billion-dollar institution will lift a finger to help you market your book. And they do lift a finger, but you think that you're, that you're under the myth that they're going to do a lot more. And this is not blaming the publishing industry. This is just the industry. You really have to do it yourself and everybody falls under into the trap of thinking they're going to help you more than they will.
0: Yeah, I remember when I wrote my first book and I was like, "Woohoo, it's all done." And I didn't know like no, the work is just beginning. <laughs> writing yeah. the book is only a small fraction of the battle.
1: And marketing, you know, if you're a writer and not a marketer, marketing is much harder than writing and you have to do a lot of it. So that's one of the reasons why I like self-publishing is that you could kind of do it at your own pace. But uh, yeah, so that's that that's definitely one of those situations but um when i when i was reading this 13 things mentally strong couples don't do it's it struck me how often i've done these things too that mentally strong couples don't do and it's a couple's two people so one or or both of the people do in in order to do one of the things mentally strong couples don't do it just takes one person in the couple to do one of these 13 things and then there's a problem and i've definitely done all thirteen of these, probably fairly recently too, <laughs> and 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 you know I've been to couples therapy. Let's see, marriage one, marriage two, and and at least two relationships. And I really hate going to couples therapy. Like I I I think I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. I I don't mean to be hogging this, but I feel like like with any profession, the top five percent are good, and the other ninety five percent are Damaging and I'm talking about this is not just therapists but like doctors, lawyers, accountants, like any profession that's help helping individuals, you really have to make sure that you're going to the top five percent because it's it's true for any profession ninety five percent are just not going to be that good and but for couple's therapy, if you go to one that's not good, your relationship is in danger.
0: <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree with that that there are some times you might go to a therapist who says something quite damaging, or they say something that is not helpful at all. But especially in a relationship, you go to somebody who takes sides and makes it clear who they side with, or you go to somebody who, I don't know, gives you really bad advice. It could be terrible for your relationship.
1: Yeah. And, and again, I want to go over the specific 13 things, but I feel like the taking sides thing is a big issue. Like, do you take side When you see couples, do you ever find yourself taking sides a little bit?
0: Uh, Yeah. I mean, of course, in my head, I'm thinking like, well, no wonder she does this. It's because you're doing that. Or or we're going to have couples that come in and like, can you believe it? Would you stay with somebody who did X, Y, and Z? And what if your partner did something like this to you? And I'm thinking, yeah, well, (laughs) I'd be upset too. So it is tough to remember. Like, it's not my job to take side. It's not my job to decide who's right and who's wrong. It's about helping this couple work together. But of course, we're human beings too.
1: Yeah. And The other problem I had with couples therapy is like, you know, you go on a regular basis, like you sign up to go every week, say, and uh, sometimes a week might be good. And so let's say I'm going to couples therapy with, I haven't gone to couples therapy with my current wife, but let's say in a prior relationship, it's almost like in the cab on the way there, we're trying to figure out like, well, well, what? what, it's like, we're doing homework. Like, well, what went wrong that we could talk about? Right. And so that's a drag too.
0: And I've worked with couples too who then like throughout the course of the week, they're trying to be on their best behavior because they're like, I don't want you to bring this up in counseling next week. So then they like either avoid subjects because they're like, I don't want to get in a fight about this because then we'll have to talk about it. Or they just, they find that they're kind of tiptoeing around things or they're extra pleasant two days before therapy, all because they're really just trying to avoid having to discuss difficult subjects in therapy. So instead of really working on their relationship, it becomes more about making sure a therapy appointment is as easy, as smooth as possible.
1: And then... I guess that the third thing that tends to happen in in a therapy session in a couples therapy session for me is I sort of instinctively go into the mode where I want the therapist to like me more yeah. than my partner and uh, uh it's just like an an instinct so I will act in ways that I feel like a I, I feel I'm winning the session and and that's that's not that healthy either.
0: It's not. And I think sometimes in, in the therapy session, somebody who maybe struggles with something outside of the office, you can hold it together right there in front of the therapist. So then they're like, no, I don't really struggle with that. I'm not sure what my partner's talking about. Or, But there's always two sides to a story and we get to decide the how we're going to paint the picture too. So then people sometimes will be like, you know, my version is this and yours is that. But yet... Yeah, just trying to get the therapist to align with with us and to like us better is certainly something that I think is pretty natural. Like, we want to be liked.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think, um, and, and look, some people are better at being likable than others. So in a, in a couple, you know, one person could win the session potentially. Right, right. So the first thing mentally strong couples don't do is they don't ignore their problems. So like, let's say... Um, they're really scared about money or debt or paying the mortgage and they express that anxiety in different ways. And so the relationship has a problem, but they're kind of ignoring like the real root of this and talking about it and, and not getting angry and defensive and so on.
0: Let's pause for a second right here to get a quick word from our sponsors. Do you want to get high quality meat delivered straight to your house or in my case, a sailboat? Try Butcher Box. It saves me time and money. And if you order right now, Mentally Stronger listeners can get steak, chicken, or salmon free in every single order for an entire year. I love that ButcherBox offers grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, and wild-caught seafood. There are no antibiotics or added hormones. They even offer vegetarian options. ButcherBox lets you decide how often you want deliveries, and you can pick a curated plan, or you could completely customize your box. Sign up at butcherbox.com/stronger and get our special deal. Butcherbox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer, plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com/stronger and use code stronger to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Okay, we're back. And money is a big one that people ignore, so I'm glad you brought that up because sometimes it'll be, we have different values about money, so we don't know how to talk about it. Or it's too anxiety provoking to really sit down and look at the budget. Or sometimes one person earns more than the other, so they aren't sure how to divide expenses. Or one person has a different taste and they like expensive things more than the other person. It brings up a lot of issues. Our own values are the way that we handle money, but then you try to combine that with somebody else. So it means we're either going to argue about it or we're going to disagree. We have to agree to disagree or your partner might want you to change your habits. Lots of reasons why people are like, I'm just going to sweep this under the rug and pretend it doesn't exist.
1: Do you find people tend to fix these things? Like I feel like sometimes these patterns are so ingrained, you know, like let's say the problem is the woman feels she does all the housework and the man feels... He makes all the money and they both resent each other for that. And so that's like a common thing. They sort of split the difference on these two different ideas. Do they? But did they ever really solve it? Like it's sort of so built into our culture to think that way.
0: It, and that's that's a common one that a lot of couples will feel like that. And so I think sometimes it's just about understanding each other. Like, all right, my partner thinks – X, Y, and Z, I think this. We don't have to think the same way, but just understanding and having some empathy over perhaps this is what their experience is like. And is there another way of looking at it? Just opening yourself up to that possibility can go a
1: long way. What if one person thinks there's a problem, but the other person doesn't? Like, I, wait, well, one person comes in, I don't think we have any problem. I'm fine with the marriage. And the other person's like, ah, uh, this, this, this. Uh, like, Does that happen a lot?
0: That happens all the time. And so I try to tell people, well, you don't have to agree that there's a problem. But if your partner thinks there's a problem, there is some kind of a problem, whether you agree with it or not. And so then it becomes, you need to, uh, is the problem to be solved? Is that just maybe helping your partner see things differently and changing their mind about the problem? Or might you change your behavior? Even if you don't agree that your behavior is a problem, it doesn't mean you can't change it.
1: This next one's very important. They don't keep secrets. I think this is like the most important thing. Although the level to what's a secret and what's just, hey, I didn't know that was so important or whatever is is tricky. The the line there.
0: It is. So most people would say, Yeah, obviously you're not gonna keep a huge secret if you uh, you know, have a serious health issue or you have a whole bunch of debt. You should probably tell that to your partner. But on the other hand, people will justify things like, well, yeah, I had coffee with my ex the other day, but it didn't mean anything. So I don't need to tell you about it. Or my coworker and I have been flirting a lot lately, but obviously I'm not going to tell my partner about that because it would upset them. So people often go to great lengths to justify the secrets that they keep by saying, I don't tell my partner because they wouldn't understand or because I don't want to upset them. But it's usually not about protecting your partner. It's really about protecting yourself.
1: What's a secret where someone's, a couple's come to you, and you know, you talk about examples in the book, but secrets that a couple's come to you with, whether one side or the other was keeping a secret, and you really did feel that was an inappropriate secret to keep, but the person insisted, no, no, it was no big deal.
0: Um, So I've had people that have had children, like before they got married, and they, like it was a man who had a child uh, many years ago, but he didn't tell his current wife that there was a kid out there that existed that was his. And he was like, you know, I'm not sure because if she'll really understand, he was paying child support on this child and like under the table so that she wouldn't, he went to great lengths to make sure that this, his current wife didn't know that he had a child from a previous relationship.
1: But he wasn't seeing the child at all? Nope. I guess because he had a bad end with the relationship and maybe she had a a new boyfriend or whatever who was going to help raise the kid so she didn't want to confuse the kid or... I'm putting the nicest possible interpretation to it, but it's still a little weird.
0: Yeah, and I think he'd gone years without seeing the child and probably felt guilty about that. So he was like, I don't want to step into the kid's life now. So he just thought it was better if it was left unsaid. But I've had lots of experiences like that where people have something from their past that they think this doesn't affect my current relationship, so I don't need to tell. But sometimes it was big things that definitely their partner would have wanted to know.
1: Yeah, although... I see where the guy's coming from. He probably was a little insecure and didn't want his current wife to leave him. And it it gets bigger and bigger, of course, the longer you keep the secret. Even though knowing this might not have anything to do one way or the other with her affection for him, he probably was just really scared.
0: Right. And I've had other people who had been married before and somehow they were able to keep that a secret when they got remarried that it just never came up. And so they might've had an entire past life that their career partner knew nothing about.
1: Wow. Uh, they don't hesitate to set boundaries. I always, I think this is an interesting one. I always have a hard time understanding what boundaries are. <laughs> so it's like a word that's used a lot. Like, oh, you you need to respect boundaries or you need to set boundaries. Uh, but like, what's an example?
0: So it might be a boundary within a relationship might be saying like, I'm not going to give you my password to my social media account, or you can't have the password to my, my phone. And you and your partner might decide like that's an okay boundary for the two of you to have. And then the two of you also need boundaries with the outside world too. So you might decide my mother-in-law isn't going to come over unannounced or we're not going to loan money to people, uh, family members without talking to each other first. Or I'm not going to loan out the car unless I talk to my partner because we don't just give our things away because our boundaries might be a little bit tighter than that.
1: Yeah, those are all reasonable ones. On the social media one, like what would you do right now, if your husband today said, look, can I see your phone and your emails?
0: I'd give it to him. And I know he'd be bored to tears within about 30 seconds. (laughs) He doesn't even have social media. So he'd be like, well, why are you posting all this? Um, And I don't have anything to hide. So for me, it wouldn't be an issue. And I don't think that it's always about something to hide. Like if I were having a lot of private conversations with my friends and they were maybe about my friend's issues, if my friend was texting me that she had a specific personal issue in her life, that may not be my partner's business to then be able to say to my husband, "Yeah, you can go ahead and read all these messages that she sent just to me." So I don't think it's an issue necessarily when people say, "I'm not going to give you all my passwords."
1: Yeah, I think I think there's a reverse issue too, which is why do you feel the need to see right my email? So that could be a bigger issue.
0: Yeah, people that struggle with say jealousy or insecurity, they often think if I check your phone, I'll feel better, but it doesn't work like that because when people are snooping, they're usually looking for evidence that somebody's cheating or that they're up to something. When you don't find that evidence, you don't like then breathe a huge sigh of relief. You usually then think, well, they probably have a secret phone or maybe they use a different app or maybe I should be listening in on their phone call. So for people yeah. who struggle with that, it usually just kind of ups the ante and they want more.
1: I think like I'm thinking now 30 years ago, I was in a relationship where I was suspicious and it almost becomes like a once. Like you never, like you say, you never get satisfied. It's almost like a full time job. Like, what's she up to now?
0: Right, right. And
1: it doesn't. You you never solve anything because the only thing that's going to make you happy is to be really sad. Is to find something that's bad. So like, oh, I was right. Oh no, I was right. So uh, they don't become martyrs. Uh, What does that mean?
0: So. When there's that tendency to be like, I've given everything for this relationship, or I have to do everything around here, or uh, I've sacrificed everything for my family, but you don't do it with joy. There's a difference between being like, oh, sure, I don't really want to do that today, but the family wants to, so I'll go, I mean, like, I don't know any parent that's like, I love watching my child's fourth grade play for three hours, right? But you do it because you love your kid. But when you become a martyr, it's more about like, I did that and I had to do it and I hated every second of it. And um, even when somebody maybe offers to help, like a partner who says, hey, can I help you with that? Like, nope, because you don't do it right. So I'm going to do it all myself. And it's like a chip on your shoulder where there's this bitterness and resentment about everything that you do, claiming it's for the other person, yet sometimes they didn't even ask you to do it. You're just going above and beyond and then complaining about the fact that you have to keep doing all this stuff.
1: And so with a lot of these, and this is, we've, we've read before, but there's, I'll go through some, some of the others. With a lot of these, it's just, is it just a matter of just being really upfront as quickly as possible? Like, hey, I'll do this, but it I just want you to be aware I'm doing more here. And I don't know, like, how do you talk about that?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of problems would be solved if we were way more upfront. And if our partners, when we express those things, if our partners just hurt us. So usually what happens is when somebody says, hey, I'm like carrying 80% of the load around here, their partner is usually quick to be like, oh, yeah, I'm carrying 150% of the load. And here's why. And it gets into this argument of like, who's doing more? If we just listen to each other like, oh, you feel like you're doing a lot more. Tell me more about that almost 90% of conversations like that could go much smoother and people could come to an agreement or figure out how do we move forward. But so often we don't want to listen and we've all been there. Somebody says, hey, I'm struggling with this. And we're like, yeah, well, I'm struggling with that twice as much. And it just becomes like this competition of who has it the most or who's devoting the most energy. And then nothing ever becomes of it because you can't agree on who's the biggest martyr or who's doing sacrificing the most for the relationship.
1: I have an idea for you on how you you can write, you know, obviously you write, follow-up articles that are related to the book as part of the marketing, you could write 13 scripts. Or maybe you have 13 articles, like scripts for... Because what you just said about what they should say, that like you said, that 90% of the time, that just diffuses it right there. And I feel like if people know these scripts and really pay attention to them, that will solve a lot of these issues.
0: That's a great idea, and I think I'll do that. Because you're right. People will often say, like, exactly what do I say? How do we have these conversations? So to give people the... And I do that too when I read a book and people are like, well, just bring up this issue. I want to know exactly what do I say in order to get what, I, what it is I want.
1: Because, I mean, it, it's got to be, like every couple probably has this conversation hundreds of times in their relationship. You know, I feel like I'm working 12 hours a day, every day on blah, blah, blah. Oh yeah, well, I'm working 15 hours a day and, and it's more stressful and it's harder. <laughs> uh, so I feel like that happens all the time.
0: Absolutely. Whether we're talking about money or like household responsibilities, parenting, like emotional labor, whatever it is, yeah, there's always that push and pull of like, who's doing more? And there's going to be times where one person does more than the other. Like, it's not going to be 50 50 probably ever. But when we can have those discussions too, like, hey, I'm working, my job is going to require more during the holidays. So I'm not going to have as much energy to put into the household. But it's temporary. You have those conversations up front. That kind of stuff can go a long way toward helping relationships
1: too. Right, like so, so like there's all these scripts that people aren't even aware they can say these things because they feel like it might provoke a fight because that's what they're used to because they're used to the the keeping score a- aspect of these things. Like I did twelve, no, I did fourteen, no, I did seventeen. Like when you could diffuse things without keeping score in one using one of these scripts that you've been saying right here, so.
0: Right, because I think the rebuttal is, or somebody says, "I've been working fourteen hours," and the other person says, "I only work ten, but my job's harder." Right, and then it's like we're comparing apples to oranges. Yet for some reason, we always do want to up the ante.
1: And it's so obvious that keeping score is not going to solve a problem.
0: Right. Like, yet we are like, com- coming have back done it. with
1: like, yeah, coming back with like, no, you're wrong. I do more. Is never going to sol- has never solved any relationship. Like no one's going to say, you know, you're right. I love you, honey. <laughs> like, <Right. laughs> no one's ever going to say that. Um, they don't use their emotions as weapons. I think that's a really important it one. It is.
0: And as a therapist, I was like, oh, I'm going to be cautious with this one. Because the last thing you want to do is if your partner's crying, be like, I think you're weaponizing your sadness in those tears right now. But on the other hand, so many people do this where they're like, yeah, I wasn't actually anxious. I didn't want to do that thing. So I said, oh, I have anxiety. I can't do that. Or how many people use anger just as a way to get out of a conversation or to escape doing something like, oh, I just raised my voice a little and then I didn't have to do it because I pretended like I couldn't control my temper. And so the more that, uh, you know, we talk about this in the therapy office all the time, when, when people get honest, they often get really honest. Like, yeah, I do that. Or people would say, yeah, I suspect my partner does that quite a bit too.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's it's again, it's tricky on both sides. Like it's it's easy to do it without even realizing you're doing it. And it's easy. I've definitely noticed it in different partners when they've been doing it. Like I had one, I had one time a friend of mine, uh, I I was, I called this friend of mine. Oh, I'm having an argument with my girlfriend. And he said, Oh, and he he was like, kind of like a dating expert. So he said, okay, when she comes in and starts bringing it up, say this, this, and this. And he predicted exactly. Okay. She's going to walk over the window and she's going to start crying. And, everything he predicted actually came true (laughs) because he was just assuming everybody manipulates everyone else and this is what a manipulator would do. And uh, it was really fascinating to see like different, he wasn't being a therapist for me. He was just describing like, this is what's going to happen and here's how you could win this situation.
0: That is fascinating. And I think there are patterns like that often. And, you know, if your partner struggles with an anxiety disorder, you don't want to discredit that. And you may need to help them with something. But on the other hand, if your partner always says like, oh, I can't do that. I have anxiety. You don't want to just give in and be like, okay, I'll do everything around here because you struggle with this. Or when they start crying, it doesn't necessarily have to mean you end all conversations because then you don't have difficult conversations. And I see that happen all the time where people are like, we had to avoid this, this, and this because we couldn't talk about it because my partner gets too upset.
1: Yeah. You know, and another thing too about the the keeping score, I think everybody thinks things should be equal all the time, but it's like you just pointed out, like sometimes somebody really does do more than the other. And it's not like we're, every relationship is like a communist relationship. Like sometimes there's imbalance, but me being upfront and acknowledging that is, is useful.
0: Yeah. There's seasons in our life. If you're taking care of an aging parent or you're dealing with, again, something stressful at work for a while, things like that. Or you develop a health issue or you're struggling with something like, yeah, you might need the other person to step it up for a while. And there may not be a a definitive timeline. You might be like, for a while, I need some extra help, or I'm going to need you to do X, Y, and Z. It'd be great if we could say it's just for the next six weeks, but it might be for a lot longer than that too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's hard because then like what if some what if because somebody's dealing with something or working so hard they're emotionally unavailable for a certain period of time, but you just don't know how long. Like how could they help each other in those situations?
0: Uh, again, I think it's about those conversations of saying like like let's say I'll, I'll use the one of somebody taking care of an aging parent. That's a really common one where somebody says you know my my mom or my dad needs a lot of extra help around their house right now, so I'm going to be over there a lot. Then to figure out, well, how can I still meet some of my partner's emotional needs? And it might be that I call you every day for 20 minutes on my commute home so that we can touch base. And then when I get home, there's 15 minutes of sitting and talking about these things. But Or Friday nights, I'm not going to go over to my mom or dad's house. Instead, we're going to go out, just the two of us. But if you come up with some sort of a plan that says this is what we're going to do, as opposed to the other person feeling like I'm never going to get what I need, it's not fair and they sit around thinking about those thoughts, things get worse.
1: Sorry, like I remember uh, when I was a kid, my dad was super depressed and depression doesn't have like a timeline. And I remember my mom's mom, my grandmother kept telling my mom, just divorce him. (laughs) And like in front of me, she would always say that. And it really left an impression on me that if you're depressed, there's a chance your wife, girlfriend, partner, whatever is going to leave you And the flip side is, of course, is that's the time when couples who are committed to each other should really try to support each other. But I I imagine it's a difficult time for both.
0: It is. And I'll have people that come into my therapy office on the other end of that and they'll say like, you know, my partner has has a problem. It might be a physical health issue, a mental health issue, a substance abuse issue. And they are like, you know, but they're not getting better fast enough or maybe the other person's not taking any action at all. And they're like, I, you know, married this person. I promised for in sickness and in health, but like, what's my responsibility here? If somebody has a a drinking problem for 20 years and nothing has changed where they're like, do I really have to keep sticking it out longer? Or, or a, do I set up a timeline that says I can only handle this for a certain amount of time? And sometimes that's what people end up doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, really like, marriage is not really different from, I mean, this was controversial, but marriage is not really different from being like boyfriend, girlfriend. It's just that it becomes boyfriend, girlfriend in the eyes of the government. Right. And so then there's legal stuff involved. Like it's marriage is just like a, a boyfriend, girlfriend that got legal. right? And so it's not like you have to stay with the other person, but then, but the flip side is, you know, if you, if you're committed and you want to You really want to be in a relationship for the rest of your life and and build and grow old together, then there's certain obligations to that that are sometimes difficult.
0: And I see a lot of people who, because they're legally married, feel like we have to stay together. And sometimes it's practical reasons because I don't have a retirement fund. And after 30 years, like I can't afford to live on my own. Sometimes it's for the sake of the kids where people are like, we're not really compatible, but I'm going to wait till the kids turn 18. Or sometimes it's just a religious where somebody says, you know, my religion doesn't allow me to get divorced, so we're going to stick it out. So for couples who are going to stick it out for whatever reason, like, well, then let's make it the best we can. And then for other couples who are able to be like, you know, perhaps I picked the wrong partner, like, that's okay, too. Like, I'm not in favor of saying, you know, you should stick it out no matter what. Sometimes people are just happier when they say, you know, we got married when we were young, and now we're different people. Like, that's okay, too.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because there's also a stigma just in society to someone's been married seven times, you would think that there's something wrong with them.
0: Right, right, exactly.
1: (laughs) So there there might be, but there might not be, where just everybody, you know, we do live in a free world and and people should do what they want. Certainly people in in today's world, people have been involved in more than seven relationships. But if someone is in seven marriages, we think, oh my God, this person's a horrible person.
0: Right. Yeah. I think you can only, like some states, you can only get married seven times. That's the limit, right? Really? (laughs) I think so. Is that really true? I I know. Right. And the reason I know that is because there's somebody who lives in my community down here. I think he's on marriage number six. So people are joking around with him like, you only got one one left.
1: (laughs) Wow. I mean, that's true in Florida. I don't know. Um, You would think that Florida, man, is allowed to marry as many times (laughs) as he wants though. (laughs) We'll have to talk to Dave Barry about that. Um, They don't try to fix each other.
0: Yeah, so of course, not a lot of people come to therapy saying, "Here's what I, I I'd like to work on," and I brought my partner just to hold me accountable. Like that doesn't normally happen. When people bring their partner to to therapy, it's usually, "Here's my partner and they're a jerk, and I need you to be on my side so that you can tell them why they need to change their behavior." Because I'll be happy if they change. And then sometimes people have gone to great lengths to try to fix the other person. It might be something small like, "Ah, oh, my partner's kind of shy, so I like to draw them out of their shell." Maybe your partner's fine with being shy. They don't want to be the most outgoing person in the room. But in other cases, and the example I give in the book is a woman who's married to somebody with a serious substance abuse problem. She goes to Great yeah. Lakes to try to change his, his drinking habits, which is something we see often, too, where somebody says, you know, my partner's self-destructive or they're hurting themselves and they don't know it. So how do I fix this? And then that's obviously a lot of work. And it's really distressing to think that you have to fix somebody else
1: it's a lot of work i remember that that example it's a lot of work and it's a lot of pain too because you would like things to be great immediately like she says to her husband you know i don't want you going to the bar so much after work and being late for dinner and so on so so that's painful and obviously she would like the next day for him to not to go to the bar to come home and have dinner with her and they're laughing and joking and eating well and all's good but that doesn't happen so she starts um eating dinner by herself and putting leftovers in the refrigerator, not complaining, but just taking actions that, so she's doing what she's taking care of herself. And then by him seeing what she was doing, he gradually kind of started to change and and so on. But you have to sort of say, okay, I'm going to do this, but for a long time, I'm going to be still unhappy while I do this. Cause that wasn't her ideal solution either.
0: No, and there's no guarantee like that changing that my gonna behavior change. is going to change my partner's behavior. Of course, that's the hope. And there are an entire like um, therapy systems like community reinforcement and family training is one that is based on if you're in a relationship with somebody with substance abuse problem. There's no guarantee. A lot of people are able to get their partner's behavior to change because basically the more I try to change my partner, the more that more defensive they get. If I quit trying to change them and I just focus on my behavior, there's a good chance that they'll follow suit, but there's no guarantee of that. And that's tough to do because it means I have to kind of come to that conclusion of I can't control your behavior. I have to deal with all of this discomfort that's going on with me, watching you self-destruct or watching you do these things that are really unhealthy.
1: I mean, you've seen so many couples and, and hopefully you've also seen couples who have been mostly happy and not unhappy. Like, what do you think are the signs of a really good couple that should stay together no matter what
0: <laughs> i think that the couples that can listen to each other and that they can empathize with the other person and that they just really want to know like okay what's going on and even if it's painful to hear i want you to tell me anyway like or is there something i do that's that's difficult or annoying and and for couples who can i guess listen into that talk about it and um and then they they have that commitment to say, yeah, we're going to stay together. We're going to work through these things. And even though it's hard, uh, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to stay right here.
1: You know, you mentioned something in the book that I thought was really interesting that you say it tends to be that the people who kind of almost brag about their happiness of their relationships on social media too much, those tend to be the unhappiest couples. Like that's obviously just anecdotal, but do you think it's, that's really true?
0: Yeah, and I, I think there's research behind that one that when people are people brag about their partner and their relationship online, it's more like they're looking for external validation. Not to say you can't show some happy pictures and, and talk positively about your partner. Obviously, you don't want to go on social media and complain about your partner. But the people who do it the most often are looking for validation. Like, see, don't we look happy together? Because perhaps they don't feel like they're in a happy relationship. Mm. Otherwise, they wouldn't need that validation from other people.
1: Yeah, I think, I think it's, I think it's really true. And I was just, I'm think I was, I was struck by that because just the other day I was thinking about a couple that I knew like 10 years ago. And it was a period when I was single and I was asking, I was asking this couple, what's your, maybe it was like, I don't know when it was was like eight or nine years ago. And I was asking them what their checklist was. They both said that they had a checklist before they met and eat the other person had really matched that checklist. And they're huge. They were huge on social media, like Oh, I love her so much. I love him so much. My life partner. And then I just found out. Uh, I was wondering, like, whatever happened to that couple? And just like a month ago, they announced their divorce. And so then I read your what you said here, and I was, I, it made me think of that about this couple I had just recently researched.
0: Interesting, because I think sometimes people get envious of those couples, and then you find out, oh, wasn't perhaps what we thought it was.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I was envious of them. And then it's funny, though, because they had built up such a social media presence as a couple, in all the comments, everybody was like, oh, she did it. She she was doing something probably. Like, look how she had changed her clothes in the past six months. Like, everyone was trying to, like, find everything from, like, their pictures, like, four months ago and and so on.
0: Right. Yep.
1: So, like everybody gets involved too if you if it, if you're going on social media with it, you gotta expect the the ramifications of that,
0: and we all want evidence of like, I should have seen this coming, and here's why, you know, and then you hindsight is twenty twenty, so you go back and you pick it apart and you're like trying to connect the dots of like clearly this was going on, yeah,
1: yeah, it's sort of like when someone dies, you always want to know uh like why right, and you, like and it's so funny, like and. On, and again, this is related to social media. On Facebook, somebody will say, oh, you know, so-and-so was 26 years old, passed away, you know, funerals at this. And they don't say why. Why right. would a 26-year-old, you know, die? And, you know, it might be, when they don't say so you start thinking, well, it was suicide or something. So you want to know, well, was they, were they depressed or did something bad happen to them or did they, uh, you know, have cancer? And so they got depressed from that. And- you you really do, like, want to know. And it's the same thing with couples. Like, you want to know so that it doesn't happen to you. So you can say, oh, phew, at least that's not my situation.
0: Let's pause for a second right here to get a quick word from our sponsors. Okay, we're back. Right, because then we're like, or we find out somebody had cancer, and you're like, did they smoke? <laughs> and then you yeah, think, well, right. as long as I don't smoke, then I'm good to go, right? Um,
1: yeah, do they live on Three three Mile Island or some radioactive <laughs> area? Uh-huh. Or- Yeah, so you want to know that it's not, you're fine, but everybody else is having a problem. Right? Um, They don't blame each other for their problems. I think I'm guilty of that quite a bit.
0: As are most people, I think, where people are like, you know, we'd be happier if my partner would change.
1: Yeah, yeah, or if, oh, my partner wanted to do this, so I did it, but now I have all these problems, or whatever. Yes, (laughs) I think this one actually maybe is the most important because this one is prescriptive. They don't forget why they fell in love. Yeah. And like the prescription is remind yourself why you fell in love and both sides should do that.
0: Right. There's a reason you pick this person. I mean, there's however many people there are on the planet and that you've come in contact with and you pick this one person. So there's a reason that you pick them and there's a reason that they picked you and just keeping that in perspective so that even when you aren't feeling the most loving feelings ever, you're still then motivated to be like, all right, I, I picked you for a reason and, and here's why it's still worthwhile to work through these problems that we have.
1: And you say, I even think you suggest there's research that just looking at photos of your spouse compared with looking at other photos improves feelings of infatuation with your partner
0: right, if you made your partner your wallpaper on your phone, or you have a little folder on your phone and you just look at their photo throughout the day, like it actually improves how you feel about them. And then when we have more positive feelings about our partner, guess what? We're more tolerant of them leaving their socks in the middle of the floor. Or we don't get so upset with them when those little things annoy us, because we're still remembering, yeah, I still have deep feelings for this person.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's really important. Um, they don't expect a relationship to meet all their needs. That's an interesting one too, particularly in this period post-COVID where we've all gotten more remote and more isolated and sometimes the relationship has had to meet more needs than normal.
0: Right. That people, I think, are depending on their partners more now than ever to be their uh recreational companion we're gonna everything fun we do together and i also need you to be my uh, emotional support i need you to be the person who's gonna build me up or give me business advice but also the person that's gonna let me have independence when i need it and you think wow we're putting a lot of pressure on somebody to then be that same person that you're gonna have a romantic relationship plus a financial relationship and you're gonna build a household together and you think that's really tough when we put that much pressure on one person
1: yeah um they don't neglect their partnership. I think that's, you know, and, and that's that's related to the next chapter too. They don't take each other for granted. I think I think these are common things as well. Like that is very easy to to fall into just a routine of neglect.
0: It is, and after people have been together for like ten or twenty years, they're like, you know, we have more like a business relationship, and. A lot of the people that come into my therapy office, it's not because they fight too much. It's just because they don't really connect anymore. And that boredom tends to kill a lot of relationships, probably more than conflict does. Or people are like, we don't really fight. But on the other hand, we don't really enjoy each other's company. Maybe we get along fine and we manage the household responsibilities or parenting or money. Okay. But it's not like, doesn't really run any deeper than that either.
1: And, and which is related to the next thing. They don't stop growing and changing. And I think you have to do that individually and kind of respect that in the partner. But then coming together at the end of the day to kind of be fascinated by all the growth and change is is key.
0: It is. And it's a tricky balance. Like I'm going to grow and change and be a different person. And I want you to still love me in a few years. And I expect you to grow and change as well. But we also need to grow and change together as a couple and make sure that we don't grow apart. So obviously you can't just be the exact same human being that you were when you got together in the first place. Hopefully you do grow and change and learn new things and as you say, keep each other fascinated and interested in one another over time. And it's a difficult balance sometimes.
1: You know, and all this begs the question about what should one do in life? Like there's all this research that loneliness reduces 15 years to your life. It's as if you were like being lonely is equivalent to to smoking all your life in terms of lifespan. So you think, okay, well if I'm married, I won't be lonely, which of course is not always true. Uh, often it's not true at all. So I think there's all these counterbalancing things. Like w- when should one leave a marriage or a relationship?
0: I think once people like lose that desire, like when I mean, you don't have any interest in in changing or you've given up all hope that your partner is ever going to change or that you can change anything. And the question would be like, why stay? Like what would be your motivation to stay? And if it's just say financial, maybe there's some other solutions to that. Or if it's just for the kids, like I never met kids who were like, I'm so glad my parents hung in there till I turned 18. That's really not going to happen either. So I see a lot of people that just delay grief. Like I don't want to be sad and that would be sad. So we're going to stay together for now, but they're not happy. So if you're not actively working on figuring out how to make the best relationship possible, then I'd say it's okay to question. Like, why am I here? Why am I staying? And, and what do I really want in life? And plenty of people are probably Okay with having a mediocre relationship, and and if that's you, all the more power to you. But for people who really want a deeper relationship with somebody, then you need to actively be working on it. Otherwise, you're going to end up uh, not getting your needs met either.
1: Yeah, and then and then life's over.
0: Right, life is but pretty short. Sure.
1: But but at the same time, like it's like it's like what people say, you, you know, whatever problems you have in one relationship, you're just going to bring into the next relationship. So, and it's hard to know where your problems are and where the other person's problems are.
0: And I think some of that is true. Yes. When you're in a relationship with somebody, you might then say, you know, I'm also struggling with the same issues in the next relationship. But I don't think that's always the case either. Certain people have the power to bring out different sides of us. Or maybe when you got together with your partner now, you're now 10 years wiser. And so even though you've developed these certain patterns, if you got into a relationship with somebody new, you might not have those same patterns. But obviously the place to start is to say, you know, if I were to change myself, what would I change? And you can always grow as an individual while you're still with your partner. um, As
1: Particularly if you do the 13 things mentally strong people don't do.
0: Right, right. Or if you don't do those things. And so, you know, if we looked at that, like, uh, yeah, there's always room for improvement in any of us, but I'm going to start with myself rather than being convinced that it's my partner who needs to change.
1: That's good advice to start with yourself. You mentioned, though, that... And I found this to be true, basically, that couples therapy is a lot about just the couples wanting approval to divorce.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was my... I didn't realize that. Again, when I started as a therapist, I was like, okay, I'll see whoever walks in my office. And then the first couple that ever came in and they were just... They hated each other. And there was no doubt about that, the fact that they hated each other. And and they really weren't there to stay together. I think they just wanted to know that it was a like... We've done everything, right? Like there's nothing we can do, right? And as they're both nodding their heads, and it was probably the only thing they agreed on. And they just wanted to like check it off their list. Yes, we have tried everything, including therapy, and there's no hope for us. So no use in staying Why do together. Why they hate each other? Like a lot of couples, I think they they got together, uh, and it was like this heated, passionate relationship. And then when they fought, it was also heated and passionate and they never worked through the issues. They just argued and yelled and screamed to the point that they weren't communicating unless they were yelling and screaming at
1: each other. Well, definitely, you know, this was th- 13 Things mentally Strong Couples Don't Do. This was a great book, but it was really, it, you know, almost more than a book that is about like individual self-help. This one was more triggering for, triggering for me because it's like, the other people you might've affected with your problems. So it's not just like about me improving. It's that it just reminded me of like all these unhealthy situations from my past. You know, and when you're, when you're old enough, you have many unhealthy situations in your past. And so it just, I was thinking of a lot of things while I read this book and all, you know, we only briefly touched on all the stories you mentioned and all the advice you give and so on. Like we just hit the chapter titles, but there's there's a lot of deep stuff in here. That made me think.
0: Thank you. I'm I'm glad. And again, I come by these lists honestly. They're all mistakes I've made and things I continue to to struggle. But also things I've learned along the way. Of like, all right, there's hope. And if yeah, because
1: you've advised a lot of couples, like you're a couples therapist, so you've seen these patterns.
0: Right, and I've seen plenty of people who came in by themselves where they said, you know, my partner won't come in with me. And th- some of the stories in the book, I never actually met the partner. I only met the person who came into my office, and we still made a huge changes. So I wanted people to know, like, even if your partner says, no, I'm, not, I'm never going to couples therapy, you can go by yourself and make some pretty big changes, too.
1: Do you ever see the TV show Entourage? No. Because uh, there's a, a couples there's quite a few couples therapy scenes in there. I'm just curious, like what couples therapy scenes in movies or TV you felt were good couples therapists, you know, being led by good couples therapists.
0: Well, you know, um, it's an interesting question. Like I just, there was a TV show built, uh, a reality show filmed in the town that I live in, in Marathon, Florida recently. And they had a, it was like a 90 day fiance, one of those spinoffs. Oh yeah. And so, and, um, they had these different couples therapists working with all of these couples in a group therapy setting. And I'm like screaming at the TV because it was so not realistic of what couples therapy was, where they were like doing group therapy with these couples that had completely different problems and everybody was drinking and they're doing all of these things that would never, ever actually happen in a couples therapist's office. So I knew that that was a terrible example and bad representation of it. But in terms, I don't know if I know any like, and I don't watch a ton of TV or movies, but what I would say is a example of a good couples therapist. that's accurate. Most of the shows about therapy in general are really inaccurate the way that they portray it on TV.
1: But you have so many like potential follow-up articles. Like I'm envious of like, you have such a wealth of material in here. Like it's, but it's the beginnings of like a lot of depth that you could then explore in different articles. So you're going to be able to market this for years, this book.
0: Well, good. You've given me hope. Thank you.
1: (laughs) What's, um, What's the next? What's the next one you want to do?
0: Ah, that's a good question too. We've been talking about doing something with business and leadership because my speakers bureau wants something that yeah. has to do with business. But I don't know. I don't know yet what the next one is. And I'm in a great place because usually my readers tell me when they read the first book, they're like, "What about kids?" So I wrote the parenting book, and then all these women were like, "What about women?" And so sometimes my I think, readers I think a, tell me a,
1: a financial one. I think is very good because you know. Financial and and health are you know if you think about it, love, financial and health are the three most important things because there's a, a a phrase in marketing that you want to um, you want to uh, good products to market are ones that help people get paid, get laid, lose weight. <laughs> so so it's basically you know financial, relationships, health, and. A uh, financial one I can see because there was, because I was very unhealthy financially, and and did all the things that mentally strong people shouldn't do, and I could only recover financially when I started doing Im- important, you know, things for my finance. You know, I had to be mentally strong about my finances. So I, I feel I feel like that's an important one.
0: I think so too. I think that could be a a helpful one for people because money is certainly an issue people talk about in therapy all the time as well.
1: Yeah. Cause it's such an emotional issue. Money. Money is just, it's like a replacement for emotions in many cases, right? you know, and also I want to thank you, Amy, because I, I didn't mention this earlier, but I was having a chess lesson like six months ago and my chess coach and I called you in the lesson to try to figure out like how I wasn't being mentally strong with, how either I was learning or competing or whatever, and you spent a good amount of time, and then you wrote the 13 things, you know, or the 10 things actually I should do and think about in, in competition and, and when I was learning and, and trying to to study this thing that, that's that been, um, you know, that I'm getting back to as I'm, as I'm older. And I really appreciate the the time you spent on that.
0: You're very so. welcome. Well, I have been thrilled to be able to follow your journey a little bit as you're trying to conquer your chess game. Um, as you grow older, I'm trying to run faster as I get older and to figure out where that tipping point is <laughs> I'm too old to keep running faster. And so I've appreciated your journey and figuring out like at what point do you come to the place of acceptance versus when you keep saying, no, it's possible.
1: Well, I wonder too. I haven't, the, that point has to happen at some point, I guess. <laughs> right? And because like s- some things age, I don't know. There's a lot of, particularly because like chess is mental, running is physical, Although arguably there's a little bit of mental and running and there's a little bit of physical and chess, like you need stamina and and so on. And uh, uh, so you wonder, some people say, oh, age shouldn't play a factor at all. And you see people who are 90 years old who run a marathon and you see people who are 80 years old who play chess very well. And so it, there's there's all sorts of things you have to learn. And And basically what I've kind of concluded is I have to be better person in every aspect of my life to be a better person at one aspect of my life.
0: Interesting. <laughs> if
1: that makes sense. Yeah. So um and 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 you know why are you trying to run as fast as possible as opposed to just running?
0: I think it started like, I don't know, I was like in my late thirties and I was like, I wonder how fast I can run a mile. And then I was like, I wonder if I could run it faster than I could when I was like 14. And I did. And then I thought, hmm. So it just kind of happened. Like, I wonder if I could shave 15 seconds off. What if I could shave another 15 seconds off? And then I thought, well, might as well see exactly how fast I can run.
1: How fast, can, how fast can you run a mile?
0: Like 6.13-ish. Of course, 13 is my lucky number. S- so, so you're not going be, for
1: a four-minute mile.
0: I'm not. I was just going to be happy with six, which when I was a kid, it was like 7.10 or something. And so I thought, all right, if I could shave. And I don't have a coach or anything, and I don't want one. I'm just kind of seeing like on my own. Like I feel like I could probably shave 13 seconds off if I had somebody who told me my form was terrible. And But it, like it's fun for me, and I'm afraid if I hire a coach – and did it like super seriously, some of the fun might be gone. So I'm just doing it.
1: Well, okay. That's a very interesting point too. (laughs) Like maybe being relaxed about it helps you. So, so how long, how long has it been since you hit 613 and you haven't been able to go past 613?
0: Um, so it was probably a year ago when I hit 613.
1: A year ago. So a year is a fairly long time to plateau because you're not only Trying to go past the plateau, you're 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 running a race against age right. because at some point, six thirteen probably does get harder. In another ten years, six six thirteen might be harder than it is now. Right. Uh, that's just a guess. So if you did get a coach, they would instantly identify what parts of your form are off, and then like a week later, you might hit, you know, five fifty nine.
0: <laughs> it's true that may be the case, and for some reason, like I don't want to do it. It's like. A- when I was a little kid, I loved running. So when I was like, we have video of, I think I was probably five, and I do a lap around the house and make my mom time me. And then I'm like, here I am at my age still doing the exact same thing, right? Basically timing myself to run a mile. And I and I love well, it, and I don't want to lose the love of it. And maybe I'm being ridiculous by thinking that a coach would make me take the fun no, out of it.
1: but I mean, if you... If you think it, it's probably <laughs> true. <laughs> so you know it's the, the whole thing about arguing for your limitations. If you don't want to have a coach, then don't don't have a coach. But I have a one intermediate, like one intermediate thing you can do, you know, like in between what you're doing now and a coach is: do you videotape yourself in the run? Nope. So maybe you could video yourself running and watch it, and then you could see where you feel like your form is off.
0: Okay. Yeah, you're right. That's probably a middle step.
1: And that might be fun. Would you think that's not fun too? Cause it's taking it too seriously.
0: Um, it might, I don't know. Like it, it could be interesting. I'm afraid it's like painful. Like, you know, how it's kind of, I find it painful to listen back to my podcast. Like I think it would be yeah. painful to watch myself run, but
1: like in, in when I was doing stand up comedy, I didn't have a coach, but I would videotape all my comedy sets and watch them later to see, Oh, I said, um, too much. Or I, did I move. I was moving around the stage in a weird way. I should be more consistent how I'm moving around the stage, or or more planned how I'm doing it. See, so, so you might see like just basic things in your form that you could change, and then you don't need a coach like that. And then you could just get five fifty nine and and. And write the book, you know, or whatever right? it is you want to do. And
0: you know, it's ridiculous. Like you knew I got six back abs in 30 days, and like I had a coach. Yeah. That wasn't I've been running a trying to run a time to mile. It's been years, right? Like I've literally done it a thousand times and like I haven't made any progress and yet with a coach. So your
1: racing is similar to my <laughs> chess in the sense that and here's where it's similar: you're better than you were at 14, but somehow you haven't achieved this level where you feel satisfied right, with it.
0: Right, exactly.
1: And you think that six minutes will do it, and maybe it will. Like it's 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 not the case that, you know, it, it really just might do it. Like you might be happy with 559 and say, that's it. Right. I'm done. Like I achieved that with comedy. Like I got to a point where I was happy and like I was done. Um, but uh, but yeah, but it's interesting what you're willing to do and not willing to do with it. Like the coach takes the fun of it, but that's why the only thing other thing I can think is, well, a watching YouTube videos, which is like a, a virtual coach. And I'm, right. I'm, my guess is you've done that. And have you asked, like you and I had the same personal trainer when you got six pack ads, Ro- Robert, uh, Brace, yeah. right. So did you, have you asked him?
0: I haven't actually, I haven't at all. Like he used to have me run as part of my, my training, but it was just more about, can you keep up with the speed on a treadmill? Like, sure. But
1: I mean, I'm sure he would have advice about it, but you don't even... And you talk to him, so... Right.
0: I should probably ask him, huh?
1: <laughs> but there's a reason why you have it. <laughs> right,
0: right. It's And it's like I'm a therapist. So I'm supposed to know why I do certain things, but something about it, like it's a, almost a joke on social media every day. I post like, gonna try again for the billionth time. Ha ha, didn't do it. And and I'm okay with not doing it. Yet at the same time, I'm like, I get, I get to do something tomorrow. I get to try again.
1: <laughs> Maybe because when you hire a coach, it makes the commitment more real. Maybe. Like that that now you, once you hire a coach, now it's possible for you to fail.
0: Right. And that, and that I wonder if that's it. Like, I'm not afraid of, of like doing it, but I'm afraid of like, what if I really tried my hardest even with a coach and then I found out I couldn't do it? Maybe that's what I'm afraid of.
1: Yeah, because then you disappoint not only yourself, but the coach. Right. And you don't want to disappoint another person with your issue. Right. And, and, but that's why I'm saying, so maybe it might be okay to videotape yourself. Yes, that there's that discomfort of watching yourself, you know, on camera, which nobody likes to do, but but, but, but then at least you're not bringing another person, you're not bringing in an accountability partner right. that's gonna be disappointed if, if you don't succeed. And it would be interesting now as an experiment to see if at least, so it's been a year since you hit 613. It'd be interesting now as an experiment to see what things you can add to your routine that will get you to six twelve right. at the very least. Because now you've plateaued for a year. There's two issues. One is achieving the goal of less than six minutes. The other is breaking free of your plateau, because right. that's an annoying thing. Like oh, you always want to see improvement. So, so it might be. Uh, and I'm sure you. I mean, I know how much you you take seriously diet and exercise and so on. I couldn't get the six pack and three hours with the same personal trainer, and I couldn't do what you did. And uh, uh, so, so, so maybe though. I mean, the only thing I think that you can add is this videotaping your your um, your run because you've probably again you've probably done all the diet things, the sleep things, the exercise things. You are probably in great shape to do it. Uh, Do you know other women your age who can run faster than a six minute mile? I don't. Uh, so you haven't joined like any kind of Facebook groups about running or things like that. Nope. So that's really interesting because you're <laughs> you're obviously really interested in it, right? And this is like I would definitely have tried to figure out anything to a get past the plateau and b get the goal. I would have done anything. I know, it's a strange, you won't. <laughs> it's a
0: strange thing, right? And like normally in anything else in my life, like I would study it, I would read it, I would do it. But there's something about this, like, and I don't know if it's like, a, like I just want to do it on my own or again, like it's fun. Like I thoroughly enjoy it, but I guess like.
1: Do you get something out of not succeeding? And
0: Maybe, maybe I just enjoy it. Like, you know, I don't want to crush every goal because then I'd have nothing to look forward to. So perhaps I'm like, oh, I'll get something to do tomorrow. I don't know.
1: <laughs> Yeah, like, are you afraid you'll stop running if you hit past six minutes?
0: Maybe. Like, in every day, I'm like, today's the day. And I'm always like, it's like a joke with everybody who sees me running, too. But, like, um, and again, I find it fun. And I'm not upset when I don't hit the goal. I'm just like, ah, today wasn't today. Maybe tomorrow. But
1: See, the fact that you're not upset when you don't hit the goal does tell me it's not about the goal. So, because you would be upset if you didn't hit the goal.
0: Right. (laughs) Like, you should be. Right. Otherwise
1: you're not it doesn't you don't care that much.
0: Right. And so it's a strange it's a strange thing because again, in every other area of my life, like if I'm decide I want to do something and do it really, really well, like I'll put in all the effort to get there. And this one I'm like, I'm trying really hard, I'm doing it every day. But I don't know. I just like the running and I think it's fun and maybe it's just the challenge and the joy of attempting it, knowing it probably isn't gonna happen today, deep down, but
1: And enjoying the the Self-deprecating social media posts and the community around that—that that you probably get, uh, you know—you probably enjoy that a lot.
0: Yeah, and maybe it's something like just really easy to fail at too. Like <laughs> if I know, yeah, right, you know,
1: like your 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 the way you think of yourself doesn't change, right? If you fail every day, like you don't say, "Oh, I'm the unhealthiest person in the world," because you you don't think that because you know you're incredibly healthy anyway. So. Uh, and society is not valuing you differently. If you go from six minutes and 13 seconds to under six minutes. Right. So it's interesting. It is. It's
0: strange. And people will always be like, Amy, why don't you, you know, get a fitness watch and do this. And people, a lot of people, some guy in a walker last week was offering me advice as I like (laughs) ran past him, but like, so I get a lot of unsolicited (laughs) advice too. And people are like really cheering me on, which is cool. But
1: yeah, no, I, I think, uh, well, this makes me think, do you think you'll write a book at some point? Like, you're a great writer. So you think you'd write a book at some point about something other than 13 things mentally strong P- X don't do?
0: Yeah, I do. I don't think this will be like the chicken soup for the soul with 8 million books in this series. I do think one of these days, hopefully I'll reach out and have a, a different book too.
1: Yeah, maybe I can, I can see runner's high and you're, you're what you get from running. Well, you know, then that reminds me of Haruki Murakami's book, um, what I think about what I think about when I think about running. Do you know that no, book? No, uh-uh. So he's a great, you know, Japanese novelist. He's he's written twenty or so novels. He's he's probably a front runner for the Nobel Prize in Literature every day. Like he's currently Japan's most respected and revered novelist. I probably read everything he writes. And but he also, earlier on in his career, he was a translator um, for Raymond Carver, who was a, a famous short story writer in the US who his most well-known story is what we talk about when we talk about love. And so Murakami wrote a book um something like what what I think about or what I talk about when I talk about running. And so a play off on that and it was kind of his autobiography in a weird way. Uh, but he's also an obsessive runner and writer. And so it was it was um he talks a lot about running in in that book and I don't know I was just curious if you had if you had read that. But but that's essentially his version of what you're going through right now interesting, and how it interweaves with how running interwove with all the changes in his career and his life and so on. So, and, and what he got out of it. And, and so it'd be interesting to explore like what you're getting out of it, uh, and what your, what your true goals are here. Cause you, you always have, I always notice with you, you, you do have something that you're going for. But it just might be unclear what you're going for here. Right,
0: right, yeah, and I don't know. It's a strange one, but I don't have the I don't have all the answers for this one for sure.
1: Yeah, that's good. It's good not to have all the answers. There is that too. <laughs> and be being okay with it. Right. Like, I don't have all the answers for some things in my life, and I'm not okay with it. Right. But which is why I brought you on to that <laughs> uh, uh, that that chess one. By the way, and this is we're, we're still on the podcast. But uh, a- Avatik wants to know if you want to go on his podcast. So I'll I'll reintroduce you guys.
0: Yes, thank you. I would love to be on his show.
1: Yeah, and uh, good luck, again, marketing this one. I really think this is, this is a, a, I mean, all your books are great. This one really touched me, the 13 Things Mentally Strong Couples Don't Do, just as much as 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And again, all your books are great, but I think these, for me personally, these, these had the most effect because 13 Things Mentally Strong Kids Don't Do. I don't really, I don't care as much.
0: Right. I'm
1: I'm not a kid anymore. I think about my kids, but they're on their own now. So <laughs> they gotta they gotta find these things for themselves. So um, but thank you, Amy. You've been on the podcast like 10 times, I feel we've even talked about how to start a jewelry business right? on the side. Yes. So, <laughs> so I always appreciate you you being around and 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 being on the podcast and consider you a good friend and and i look forward to to the next time we get together me
0: too thank you james thank you thanks for listening to this special bonus episode of mentally stronger where i combined forces with james altucher to hear more from james listen to the james altucher show wherever you listen to podcasts